Welcome to Graduating Grief, a podcast designed to help you step back into living your life with joy after loss. If you're ready to move from surviving to thriving, you've come to the right place. Here's your host and inspirationista, Sherry Dunleavy. Hey everyone, it's Sherry Dunleavy, your inspirationista, and I'm so glad you're joining me for this edition of the Graduating Grief Podcast, because today I am talking with Mr. Jollytologist, <laughs> Alan Klein, who is an author and a speaker, and I want to talk to him especially today, because his latest book is Embracing Life After Loss. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sherry, for having me on. It's always a pleasure to speak to such great people. So thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. So tell me, embracing life after loss. Sometimes we write about those things that um, are personal to us. I'm imagining this is the case for you. Definitely is. And um, my wife died at the age of 34. And for three years, she had a terminal illness. And I'll, I'll talk to about that in a minute. But the reason this book came out is because after she died, and if you've ever had anyone close to you die, you know that you're grieving. And I was grieving a lot. I never had anyone that close to me die. And so I went to a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I looked at um, books on, on loss. And none of them were helping, particularly the book. Well, first of all, the therapist told me after the second session that life is tough. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, I'm not paying you whatever it was that X amount of money every week to tell me life is tough. So I walked out of the office. <laughs> um, and then I started looking at books to help me to grieve. And they were big, fat you know, two, 300 pages. And I thought, I can't read this. And when I did, they told me about, um, I might not feel well, I might lose my appetite, I like, might lose my sleep, but you know, I might be depressed. And I thought, I don't need this book. I need a book that would be uplifting, that would be motivational, that would be comforting, that would hold my hand and help me get through this process. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I wrote Embracing Life After Loss. Okay. And I thought, I don't know if you know, you probably do, um, Kubler-Ross's work. Mm -hmm. So she has the five, stage, five stages of dying. And I thought, well, if Kubler-Ross has five stages of dying, I want five stages of <laughs> um, getting through loss, of, of embracing life after loss. So I came up with five L's. Okay. Losing, learning, letting go, living, and finally laughing. Yes. And so um, the very short sections in each of those are many sections. And if you want, we can go through some of them and I'll show you why I think they're uplifting and really uh, inspiring which I know they are. People have told me, I know one woman, she, her son was um, actually committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And she said, your book was the only thing that I can keep by my bedside that would help me every single night to get, you know, to read. So you created something that you needed 
But how did you get the information and how did you do the healing when you couldn't find what you needed? Did you have to muddle your way through, figure this out on your own? How did you get through it, Alan? Well, it didn't, it didn't happen right away. This was um, one of my later books down the road. My first book was The Healing Power of Humor. And that came about because my wife, even though it was a very difficult three years, she had still kept her sense of humor. Give, give you one example. She was in the hospital with a copy of Playgirl magazine with the male note centerfold. And she said, <laughs> Alan, I, I really like this hunky man this month. Uh, can you put the picture on the bed over there? And I said, Alan, it's a hospital. It's a little risk for that, risque for that. And she said, well, maybe you're right. She said, why don't you get the leaf from the plant over there and cover up that part? <laughs> and I did that and things were fine for the first day, fine for the second day. But by the third day, the leaves start shriveling up. <laughs> and we would look at it and we would start to laugh. Mm -hmm. And I realized it wasn't a lot of laughter. It was what five or ten seconds mm -hmm. but as laughter as humor always does it helps us rise above the situation yeah it gave us a little reprieve it gave us a perspective mm -hmm. and so ellen passed away i went back to school to learn i gave up a business i had actually mm -hmm. sold it to my partner went back to school to learn about death and dying became a hospice volunteer became a home health care aide and I would notice how people who were seriously ill or dying often would use humor. And sometimes it was sarcastic, cynical humor, but sometimes it was the only thing they had left. Right. And so I realized nobody was talking about that. And nobody was writing about the, the coping, the therapeutic value of humor. And so I went back to school. I got a master's degree in human, H-U-M-A-N, development. And my thesis was The Healing Power of Humor, which turned into my first book. Um, now in a 40th printing and a ninth foreign language. Right. So it's done very well. And there was a need for it. Norman Cousins was talking about his using humor at the time. Um, I just happened to hit a nerve, I think, and be at the right place at the right time. Right. So I wanted to show people um, how to use humor to deal with not so funny stuff. Mm -hmm. So my second book was actually The Courage to Laugh, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is about humor and death and dying. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote several other more positive books. And then I realized I really need to write a grief book. Right. So it was down the road. It wasn't like right away. Right, right. And it was as you grew and as you evolved and as you lived, because that's what the graduating grief philosophy is. It's, it's loving, learning to love your life again after loss, right? Because it is possible and it is necessary. You know, we can either remain in a state of suffering and what kind of life is that, right? Or we can go through the steps, like you said, and come out at the other end, really loving our life, laughing and embracing the joys that are in there because they're still there and they're still available to us. But we have to tap right. into that and we have to do some work. 
Oh yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come naturally because you know we've lost a loved one. We've lost someone we cared about. It takes time. Right. Um, but you know, I had a real a real uh, kind of light bulb example. I was a hospice volunteer for a couple mm-hmm. of years. And one of my um, clients was a young woman, probably in her mid thirties that lost her mother. Mm-hmm. And they assigned me to her. And I noticed for two years, she was severely, severely grieving. And this is a young, vital woman. But I thought, Alan, look, two lives have been lost. The mother who died and the daughter who no longer can enjoy anything in her life. And it took it took two years for her to fully start, or at least not even fully, but start coming out of that severe grief that she was going through. Right. So I realized it is possible. And, um, you know, I think people feel that they don't haven't honored the person who's who's died if, if they're laughing. Right. You know, or, you know, and and they feel guilty about it. And that's I think I think we need is I don't know how, but I think we need to start stopping that because I interviewed a number of people for several of my books about how they how their loved one who has passed would want them to feel after the loved one's gone. And I would say 85% said they would want the loved one to for the other person to go on with their life and to enjoy their life fully. Right. Not forget them, you know, remember right. the deceit, but to enjoy the life. And maybe uh, one of the things that helped me was to learn the lessons that my wife taught me. Yeah. Because when I, when we first got together, in fact, she gave me, I still have it framed, is a man, a little, or a little boy actually coming out of a real snail shell. Mm-hmm. And that was me. I was like very shy when I was younger. I was not talked to anyone. I was an introvert. And she was the one we'd go out dancing, you know, she would take me dancing and stuff. She was the one that was full of life and, and just, you know, laughing a lot. We laughed a lot together. So she kind of drew me out of that shell. And so that's what I remember. That's some of the things that I remember in her honor. And that's what lives on through you, because a lot of what you do is embracing that laughter, right? So that's how you carry her and her memory with you. That's how she lives on, correct? Oh, definitely. And my daughter was 10 years old when my wife died. And in fact, um, my wife had been in the hospital two weeks and I was with her most of the time, but I came home, there was no food in the house. So my mother-in-law was here and I said, I'm gonna go shopping and get some food in the house. And I came back and my mother-in-law was in front of the house. Alan, Alan, come on, I think Ellen has died. And Ellen fell out of bed and was on the floor. She had passed away. And just then, maybe 10 minutes later, my daughter came home from school. And my mother-in-law is going, we got to call the undertaker, call the undertaker. And I said, no, we're not calling the undertaker. And I got my daughter and we sat on the floor with, with my wife and her mother. 
And Sherry, I don't know what made me do that. I don't know what kind of made me uh, go against my mother-in-law. But there was some gut feeling not to take the body away, that we need to say goodbye, that my daughter needs to say. I mean, this wasn't all rational at the moment, right, but it right. was just, I did it. It was a knowing. It was a knowing. Yes, thank you. And it was one of the best things I did with my daughter. Because imagine if she came home from school and I'd say, mommy died. And she's gone. Where is she? She's gone. So I think we need any of your listeners that are afraid to, you know, do something like that. Or even I know when I was a, a child, I could not go to my grandpa's funeral. I think I was seven or eight. And I always wondered what happened to him. You know, suddenly he's there and then he's not. And I really liked him. So I think anybody with children need to realize that children understand and children need this. It's part of life. They need this lesson. It is. And, you know, I think that we've come from um, a generation of people that try to think we're protecting our children. But what we're doing is we're not really protecting them because children are their their most resilience state you know, the younger you are, the more resilient you are. And so if you make it a normal part of life, a normal part of the conversation, it loses that awkwardness and they're better equipped as adults. That's why we're having the problems we're having today because no one knows how to talk about this. No one knows what to do. No one knows what to say. No one feels comfortable talking about it. So we just don't. And we act like it doesn't happen. And yet it happens to every single person. No one gets out alive. Newsflash. Right. No one gets I'll out alive. I'll tell you some other, <laughs> some other gut things addressing what you're saying. You're, you're so right. You're so right on um, exposing children to death and dying situations. But after uh, my wife died, Sarah's mother, I said, we need an adventure. We mm -hmm. need, you know, and we went. Again, it was just this gut thing. I hardly had any money at the time to even do this. We went on a, a ship um, to Alaska mm -hmm. and we went through the inside passage and we slept near um, glaciers and we went on a seaplane ride and we saw puffins and it was the most magical thing and so bonded us together. You know, it was so needed at the time. Yes. And after that, we would um, we would always talk about Ellen. It wasn't, you know, like she's she's yes, she was gone. But we would if something came up and we didn't know what to do, we'd go, well, uh, Sarah, uh, dad, what would Ellen do? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're so right about keeping that person's memory alive. Right. Um, it's so and through shared experience and through shared experience. And I love the fact that you guys went on an adventure because that just shows that life goes on and joy is to be had. And there is this big world that's open to us still. You know, the end of your wife's life was the end of her life, but it was not the end of yours or your daughter's. It was a chapter in your life story. And I love how you started rewriting it in the positive right away. That's beautiful. 
Right. And it didn't mean and, that it wasn't and, hard, right? It didn't mean that it no, wasn't no, hard. No, it was, you know, I'll tell you, there was lots of tears and Sarah and I crying together and me crying myself to sleep. But, you know, yes, yes. Um, but I also realize again, is like, how would Ellen want us to live? You know, she was always joyous. She, you know, I, the doctor said she should rest in bed and it was disco time and she would love to disco. And so she'd go out discoing. And I say, Ellen, you're supposed to stay at home. No, I'm going out tonight, you know. Um, so she was full of life. She was a gourmet cook. And we lived in New York City at the time. And I would come home and then maybe this beautiful gourmet dinner for two with candlelight. And it was fabulous. Or there might be 25 people in the house that she invite, happened to think, oh, I'm going to make this big pot of minestrone tonight and invite 25 people. So there, there was this sense of adventure and of life, you know, f living fully um, that whole time. And I thought, why should that end now? That should continue in her honor. Well, that's beautiful. So let's go into um, your book, Embracing Life After Loss. Let's go into um, a couple of those of those steps because I'm, I'm really interested. What was the okay. first step again? So the first step is losing because... Um, until we realize we have lost something, we can't deal with it. Right. So for me, the first step was losing. Um, and death is part of life and we don't live forever. I think that's one other thing to realize that we don't live forever. Right. I mean, I'm trying. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. If I'm... So I'm just going to open. I just opened to a page. This is the losing page. So okay. I have a little saying, poem, something at the uh -huh. top. And then I write about a little bit about it. So people can pick it up and just get one page uh, if that's all they want to read. So this is about your unique grief. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a little thing by Emily Dickinson. I measure every grief I meet with narrow probing eyes. I wonder if it weighs like mine or has an easier size. And then I write about that, about mm -hmm. people, you know, everyone's grief is different. Don't compare. Right, right. The, well, someone said the other day, and I like this, they said, the worst grief is your grief. So, mm. you know, don't try to downplay it, you know, or compare to anyone else's. Well, they, the, you know, they lost a child. So, you know, me losing my dog isn't... Um, you know, nearly as, as critical and I shouldn't be feeling this bad. The worst grief is your grief because you're feeling it and you ha are experiencing the, your loss of what you loved, of what you held dear. Right. I, um, you know, and grief is so different. I remember I used to have a business downtown San Francisco and I would walk by, this is several months later after Ellen died, I would walk by the new Bank of America building. It's a big, dark building. And I would start to cry. And it just like astounded me because we had no connection to the bank. We didn't even bank at Bank of America, yeah. <laughs> you know. You can't explain grief sometimes, right. you know, it just just happens and right. you just have to let it happen and eventually it passed but it did happen several times and 
it was weird, but there it was. So your grief is totally different than anyone else's. Right. And it's special to you. So don't downplay it. And it's, you know, I, I, I love that piece of advice, but I mean, I know, and I know you have some other steps. What's your favorite part of this book and what is your main message to people? Well, the main message, you know, it's going from loss to laughter. So um, we've been talking about this. The main message is you can lo lose and you can continue living. Right. And it's and you have that choice. It's, you know, I guess the main message is you have a choice of how you're going to continue to live. Right. And, um, you know, and hopefully this book can help people get from the losing to the laughter. Right. And I just think that that is that is such a message that people need to hear. But what I love what you said is that you have a choice because so many people believe that they don't, but only you can choose it. So no one else can right. choose it for you. Only you can right. choose it. And you know, I'm not a researcher. I'm not a scientist, but I just, I want to read you this very one sentence. I want to get it right. So I'm going to read it. Um, okay. A couple of years ago, Dasher Keltner and George Bonanno, they're um, researchers mm -hmm. and they, they uh, work with widows and widowers. And they found that the more widows and widowers laughed, and smiled during the early months after their spouse's death, the better their mental health was over the first two years of bereavement. So we think, oh, you know, we feel guilty laughing. We feel it's not right. We're not honoring the deceased. And yet here's scientific studies showing at least smiling, laughing, enjoying life again is a way to recover healthier than not. Right. So, And, and I think that, you know, um, one of the most healing things, that, and they even say this with, with, the, with dying people. Oh, excuse me. Something just dropped in the background there. Um, <laughs> Careful. <laughs> yeah. Um, that turning on a comedy, you know, uh, reading something funny, this actually helps boost your immune system. It actually helps make you feel better. And, you know, mm -hmm. it is, it, laughter is healing. Laughter is healing. So why wouldn't laughter be a great part of healing through your grief? Yeah, you know, I've heard over the years, um, how can you laugh at a time like this? And my thing is, how can you not laugh at a time like this? If it's going to help you get through the loss, get through your healing, why not? Why not look for it? It reminds me of that episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Do you remember that? When the, <laughs> oh, yes. When the, uh, yeah. <laughs> when the clown, brilliant. was it the clown, the, the station's clown? Yeah, guy. I forget his name, but. Um, yeah. And Mary. Yeah, and she's trying cry. not to yeah. laugh. Yeah. 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 She's trying not to laugh. And, and, and that's another, you know, they make a great point in that segment. Laughter and tears are very close. Yes. And they both kind of came from the same well, you know, well up. And uh, so if you're crying, you could also laugh because they're both very similar. Thank you for listening to the Graduating Grief Podcast. For more information on the Graduating Grief community, workshops, and retreats, go to www.sherrydunlevy.com. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.